and I'd like to welcome you to episode 41 of This Week in FCPA. As always, I'm joined by my cohort, Jay Rosen, no longer Mr. Translations, but now Mr. Monitors, which he will explain why he's had this change of designation. This week finds us on location in Washington, D.C. at the conclusion of the 2017 SCCE Utilities and Energy Conference for a live broadcast. In it, we discuss our thoughts and some of the highlights that we both had around this year's conference. And to demonstrate the live nature of this podcast recording, Jim Moore walked by. Jim tells us about uh, what he's up to these days. And it's interesting to always, always interesting to have Jim on board. The episode itself comes in at uh, just around 30 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to This Week in FCPA, a special on-location edition in Washington, D.C., where Jay Rosen and I are here for the SCCE Utilities and Energy Conference 2017. So, Jay, uh, welcome to an on-location recording. Thanks, Tom. It's uh, pretty cool to be able to do this live, on-location, no dogs in the background, no kids getting ready for school, so uh, good to see you. Indeed, uh, we're here in the lobby of the uh, Hyatt, Grand Hyatt, D.C., where the conference was held. And I guess we should uh, moniker this one as the uh, D.C., uh, the Washington, D.C. edition. But I thought maybe we could kind of go over the highlights, uh, each of our highlights for the, uh, the week, the conference. It's the first time I recall that Utilities and Energy Conference being held in Washington. It's generally held in Houston. So uh, what were some of the things that really uh, stood out for you? There was... Uh very scary uh, presentation on the dark web, and uh, one of the uh, presenters actually got up there and showed us how easy it would be to uh, look at a water tower or a wind propeller and actually make changes. And um, all of these utilities assured him that they had the best security in place and that you know they were using um, secure lines. So then we also got a tour of the dark web and learned that we could buy credit cards in our own hometowns and uh, how to go about uh, securing a 55-inch TV from Best Buy. So I, I thought that was um, you know, a very interesting uh, presentation, especially in light of the utilities and the power companies that are here and with any potential uh, flaws in our grid and it, unfortunately with any uh, vulnerabilities to terrorism, there seems that there are some large gaps in our infrastructure. Yes, uh, that was a fairly terrifying uh, presentation, and the um, really the scope of infrastructure vulnerability from everything from being able to turn water towers on and off to moving uh, giant fans on uh, wind farms to even um, being able to obtain online uh, what would at least be confidential to the utilities documents. Uh, there was one... Um, DAM, that's D-A-M DAM, where a uh, risk assessment was done uh, pointing out the vulnerabilities and population at risk. It was available uh, online without uh, security. So uh, all in all, pretty, uh, pretty scary. I guess the part that uh, struck me was he, he put up some examples of the dark web where people could buy U.S. passports. And these were, although the, they were fraudulent passports, they were actually real, um, real U.S. passports sold by real U.S. consular officers 
who were uh, breaking the law to, to sell these to this gentleman, and then he would slide in the appropriate name, uh, social security number, and date of birth. So that part was fraudulent, but they were actually real passports that uh, would pass a passport screening muster. Uh, so some pretty um, horrifying uh, information in that presentation. But uh, really, uh, I found um, I was a little less, uh, skeptical of having the event outside of Houston because, of course, Energy is, is headquartered in Houston. And we had more utility regulators here this year, as you would expect, in Washington. Uh, but I'm always struck by the level of compliance that utilities have to engage in, largely because they're regulated industries. When you move to nuclear, obviously you have a huge amount of uh, regulation, but in many ways their compliance programs are more mature than those that we see in the anti-bribery and anti-corruption space. So I always get a lot of um, interesting ideas listening to utilities and utility regulators talk about compliance, uh, as you might expect, more in a regulatory framework than a criminal investigative framework, uh, but lots of good ideas uh, from uh, that angle. Um, there is also a, a really good presentation that we saw this past fall in Chicago from your uh, colleagues at Gerber, yes, the Greater Houston Ethics and Business Roundtable, and it was uh, Amy Lilly from Centerpoint Energy, Joya Williams from uh, Shell Oil, and the always entertaining Stella Raymaker from Waste Management. And it was really interesting to look at three different organizations, one that just has thousands of people, Royal Dutch Shell, and then, then even the smaller, um, you know, like Centerpoint. But in terms of your remark about maturity, uh, they really have the message down. And I think one of the things that's interesting in companies like that, especially in oil and gas, is that safety is a real big part of their message. And I think safety dovetails really well with compliance. And they've already had that delivery vehicle to have safety moments. So I think it gives them an, uh, an additional way to not sneak it in, but there is a receptivity of their workforce to be learning and to be educated. And I think that provides a real great platform for ethics and compliance. And that would be something that it would be interesting for other industries to see if they could adapt and adopt that message. You know, it's an interesting insight, and uh, my background is as a recovery trial lawyer, and I uh, handled catastrophic uh, injury and property damage cases for many years and saw that change in safety where safety became paramount in the uh, energy space and, and truly a cultural change. But to your point of the delivery mechanisms of the safety message, have allowed these companies to have uh, be able to deliver a compliance message as well. Uh, Centerpoint Energy, um, interestingly, uh, does a lot of uh, videos, but even with uh, top-level senior management up to and including the chairman of the board of directors. And someone asked uh, Amy Lilly um, from Centerpoint, well, how much does that cost? She said it was all filmed on an iPhone. And so when you think about the tools that you have available to you today to cre create a compliance communication. This is not 60 minutes of hardcore training, but a communication. And at Centerpoint, um, employees can take uh, six short five-minute communications or one-hour ethics and training. Um, so uh, I think it was 75%, 70 to 75% choose the uh, communications uh, five 
five five-minute communications messages for their annual ethics training. So I thought that was a, a really interesting insight. But to your point on uh, having safety, um, as a shout-out to Gerber, our next meeting in April, we're going to talk about the convergence of compliance and safety. But that safety message, uh, I saw a cultural change in the 90s in corporations, and what I see now in many ways mimics in compliance world what we had to go through in uh, the corporate world around safety. So there is a way to change culture. There is a message that people are receptive to, and particularly for companies that emphasize safety. You're absolutely right. It gives you a mechanism and delivery platform to, to put out a message of compliance in addition to your uh, safety message. So you were starting to talk about, Tom, with us being here in the Beltway now versus Houston, did you notice any difference in the complexion of the attendees? Uh, you know, I'm sure there's less people who traveled out from Houston, but were there either other folks through, um, you know, the east and, and the southeast that maybe attended here that would not have made it to Houston? Well, I would say people that are D.C. or New York-centric who wouldn't have come to Houston, there were more of those sorts of folks, but uh, there was a pretty broad brush of utility folks here from across the country because of the utility focus, obviously, of the com uh, conference. There were less uh, energy folks from Houston. That's uh, in large part because of the current, still current, uh, swoon in energy prices and just not budget for out-of-town or out-of-state travel for conferences. But um, I had uh, was fearing uh, a drop in attendance, but I think we had a pretty robust attendance uh, and uh, lots of regulators uh, from NERC and FERC were here as well, not only uh, giving their messages of compliance and safety, but also uh, soaking up what folks are doing in the field. And I think that's an often overlooked part of these conferences that the regulators learn too. And the regulators are interested in hearing what the industry is doing. And I had several regulators speak to me about uh, different angles of anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance that I spoke about in my FCPA presentation how they might adapt that to their uh, utility regulatory compliance scheme. So a lot of information sharing, uh, a lot of good, uh, I thought, cross-fertilization from that perspective. Were there any uh, other, other of the um, presentations that stood out to you? Well, um, our colleague uh, Samantha Kellen-Greaves um, spoke about crafting a communication plan. And it was um, a really interesting presentation, I thought, because she did an A to Z from uh, uh, development all the way through execution of a communication plan around an issue that their monitor, the Duke, that she works at Duke Energy, who has a corporate monitor, their monitor identified a weakness uh, that she did, not, she did not disclose. Nevertheless, she disclosed and was able to talk to us about the remediation um, component, which included communication. And that was very interesting to see. Uh, I think it was a six-step process she walked us through, and uh, it was a great slide slide deck which laid out all of the steps. So I thought uh, that was really interesting to see the process for putting together a communications uh, message. Uh, the Gerber girls uh, were, uh, for me, a highlight uh, that you mentioned, uh, and it was really interesting to see the three of them together on stage talk about the differences in because of the differences in their corporations, both size, scope, and um, focus, uh, the different approaches to compliance. So that, that was a, a highlight as well. Uh, we were talking about, um, I guess, just the 
uh, attendees and whether or not uh, DC made sense. And I happened to attend a presentation by Eric Moorhead, who um, had a very interesting deck on how you um, reach remote workers. So right. if you've got people who are in the oil field, the people who are based at home, and he was uh, somewhat optimistic that things are turning in Houston, that uh, things might be on the rebound. Do you share that same opinion or is so what's, what's your undergrad degree? Undergrad degree is marketing. Marketing. Well, you take any economic, economics courses? I did. And did, did, did you learn in an economic course that when you have a downturn, you tend to have an upswing? That's kind of a market force. Yes. So we're actually beginning, we are either at the end of the swoon or at the start of the upswing. Now, uh, part of that is OPEC announced uh, some uh, uh, quantity fixes or, or quantity uh, um, tops that they would not uh, uh, produce and let the market. Uh, that's managed to hold for longer than it's ever held before. So that's part of it. Um, but it's, I think it's just a natural swing. We've been down now for uh, three years. Three years, yeah. yeah. So uh, you're, we're going to have a swing back, and uh, it's just supply and demand. As much as uh, politicians and people rail against regulation, uh, I've seen three and four of these now, and it's just market forces. You uh, you get a very high price. Everybody produces. You overproduce. There's a glut. The price goes down, and guess what? Production goes down. So everybody lays off. Uh, the interesting thing, though, from uh, can kind of keep on this for a moment is that in the energy space the companies uh, have large they've laid off uh, 30 to 40 percent of their workforces generally and they have replaced those headcounts with um, technology technology solutions and so even when oil rebounds I don't think we're going to see the number of people hired back and I think that's a very important lesson for the compliance space uh, which <clears throat> was largely lawyer-driven and now moving to compliance professional-driven, but we may see an influx of technological solutions that actually reduce the amount of headcount in a compliance function but allow it to operate more efficiently more efficiently, and with a greater resolution. So uh, I'm going to kind of follow that trend in the energy space around the introduction and use of technology see if uh, I can really bring some of those concepts over, at least talk about those in the compliance space as well. Yeah, I think uh, I was uh, just having a conversation with somebody who wasn't from the conference, but just a colleague, and we were really um, addressing that issue about, you know, the jobs that have gone away. And uh, some of those, the jobs that exist, like I don't think my job would have existed 30 or 40 years ago to, right. to the degree of the, um, you know, to the specialty of what I'm selling. There's always going to be sales positions. But sure. uh, when I was growing up in Manchester, New Hampshire, I don't think I said, hey, I want to grow up and sell certified legal solutions or I want to help people, uh, you know, secure an independent monitor. So as new um, industries and job titles are created, Sometimes it absorbs the old ones, but sometimes, uh, you know, I, I can't think that there was anything special that I did to be able to enter the different careers that I've had. I had a great undergraduate training and, you know, probably worked a little bit harder than other people. But I think uh, what we have to keep in mind when we're talking about the net loss 
or flow of jobs is that the economy is constantly changing. And, you know, I think some of the folks here and some of the ideas expressed at this conference, to your point, Tom, shows that, you know, technology can fill in that gap and you still have some of these workforces, especially, you know, the energy companies that you have people out in the fields and on platforms. Those folks have to learn how to use technology, too. So I think technology can be the equalizer, but hopefully it creates new opportunities as well. Well, it certainly will. And um, I really like your point about the, the educational training, college degree that you had, certainly uh, what would be termed general. But I think that's important to have a general training so that uh, you can uh, make these shifts as market forces, technological forces, or other forces kind of move businesses in different ways that you're able to personally respond and adapt and learn and take the basic liberal arts degree that you, you and I both have and use that going forward. So, um, you know, perhaps that's a, a lesson from the energy space. You know, we did have one thing in the FCPA world, actually two things I want to uh, uh, talk about. Um, first of all, I saw an announcement at Facebook today, of a press release about a new job. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, uh, Monday was my first day uh, working for Affiliated Monitors Incorporated. Uh, we are based out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and it's an organization of very talented men and women, some who are former governor, uh, government regulators, and what we strive to do is to provide independent monitor solutions. So, for example, when we were talking earlier that Duke had a monitor put in, we would be a company that would be able to provide that solution. Uh, I saw an interesting panel led by um, EY and also somebody there from Duke. And um, when you bring in an independent compliance monitor, um, you have a binary decision. You can kind of look at them as somebody there to help your company, or you can look at them as somebody there to uh, be the eyes and the ears of the government. And I think that relationship is very important to establish at the beginning. And that's one of the topic areas that I'd like to explore over the next few months is, you know, when you do have a monitor, how do you get the most out of that situation? So uh, that's my, my new employment thing. And we, we have to say goodbye to Mr. Translations. I think he'll come up every once in a while. But uh, uh, I think this is Mr. Monitor's uh, first appearance on the, this week in FCPA. Mr. Monitor, all right. Uh, now, has Mrs. Translations uh, also retired uh, her uh, designation, and has she moved to Mrs. Monitor, or are we leaving her to I, uh, uh, set her own path? I think we'll let her set her own path. She's pretty, uh, she, she's pretty uh, capable of handling that. You know, I would say that's the safe answer. <laughs> uh, but we also had some interesting news. Uh, turned out it was released February 8th, but uh, for some reason the compliance community was not aware of it until Matt Kelly broke the story this weekend. And that is the Department of Justice released a document entitled an Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. It's available on the Fraud uh, Section website. Um, several of us, uh, including myself and Matt Kelly, blogged about it, and it's available uh, on a hyperlink in both of our blog posts. But it's an 11-point program that the uh, Department of Justice released where uh, it tells you, gives you their thought process of how they will evaluate a compliance program. And it also gives you a fabulous uh, resource to benchmark your own compliance program. So it's an 11 point. It's based upon the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. It adds one new point, which is uh, your uh, investigate, not really investigation, but more 
of your root cause analysis of any uh, issues or problems that might arise. Uh, but it goes through each one of the hallmarks and then uh, asks a series of questions. And indeed, there are 46 questions uh, that the uh, evaluation poses uh, for you uh, to ask yourself and to evaluate your own program based upon what the government will ask you. But it also emphasizes a couple of things that I think are important, but they're ongoing themes we've heard about from the government for the past 18 months or so. And the first one is the operationalization nature of compliance. You've got to put compliance into the fabric of your organization. You cannot have a paper program. You cannot have something you put up on the shelf. If you have a certified program, that's great. It's certified, but that's meaningless in terms of unless it's operationalized uh, and actually doing compliance. So I was very, very, very heartfelt grateful uh, to, uh, to see that the government putting that in print because it's obviously something I've been talking about for, for some time. And it's, it's a really an excellent resource, and I, resource for you. I would urge you to get a copy of it and utilize it uh, to just to take a look at your compliance program. But it also gives you a way to communicate and educate your senior management because the government is specifically saying, this is what we're looking for. So you can go to your senior management, and when they say, well, why are you asking for this? Uh, you can just whip that out and say, because here's what the government says to the point where the government said they're going to look at the funding of your compliance program. Who made the decisions on that? Did you make a budget request? Was it turned down and why? So that they're going to go to that level of a granularity and I think that's a, a very important step forward for compliance programs. Uh, any reason or any theories on the way it was just kind of silently released to the market? Uh, really no, uh, no clue about that uh, at all. Really, this is the first time we've, we've had that kind of uh, silent release. Um, you, uh, you ever open up a restaurant? Soft there? opening. Yeah. So they had a soft <laughs> opening. So, Jim Moore, you want to come join our podcast? <laughs> Are we still live? We're we still are. live. Have a seat. So uh, just to show you our live nature of this podcast, Jim Moore has uh, just joined us. Jim, can you say hello to the uh, studio audience? Well, I absolutely would like to say hello. Greetings, everyone out there. And, Tom, it's good to see you again. Well, Jim has been here in D.C. for the conference as well. So uh, Jim's had the opportunity to meet with uh, several folks, and it really leads to the next topic I wanted to talk about, which uh, Jay and I comment on uh, regularly. A large part of these conferences is uh, interaction. It is um, commingling. It is uh, interacting with uh, the other attendees and really not only talking about what you're doing but learning about what other folks are doing. Jim, have you had the opportunity with, to meet with some folks and just hear uh, kind of what people are doing and then maybe incorporate that into some of the new things you're up to? Absolutely, Tom. As you mentioned, these, these uh, conferences are a great opportunity to do the networking, to learn new trends and uh, various other things in the marketplace. And I think uh, the business I'm representing is legal translations that, that covers both transactional, such as internal investigations, more public FCPA investigations, as well as updating and improving uh, companies' compliance programs. So uh, it was really a great opportunity for me over the last couple of days to meet with uh, uh, folks in that business and who are struggling with ways to improve and adapt the uh, globalization of their compliance programs. Jim, one of the things that I've always uh, really appreciated, and I learn it every time I come to, the one, to one of these, every time I think I have something to say and I want to tell people but I've got this or I'm doing that, if I just shut up and listen, I learn so much more and I actually communicate more because I'm able to take what people 
want and need and their individual businesses or ideas they have and incorporate that into to whatever I'm doing. Do you find that to be a valuable process for you as well? Well, you know, Tom, the old adage of two ears and one mouth applies across the board everywhere and absolutely is the case. You know, you can learn a lot more just by asking a few relevant questions and informed questions and listening. So that's one, uh, I do a leadership podcast and I study a lot of business leaders. And if there's one theme uh, they articulated, it is shut up and listen. So uh, I really tried to try to do some of that uh, this conference and really heard a lot of uh, great things uh, from, from regulators, from uh, corporate uh, compliance officers, from uh, folks like yourself who have products or services, uh, to the government regulators uh, as well. And even the, the conference organizers, the SCCE folks, talked about things that they're hearing and things that they hope to, to bring up uh, throughout the year to help the compliance profession go forward. So uh, I was really grad, uh, gratified to see you and glad you could uh, join us for part of these discussions. As always, Tom, look Thank forward you. to uh, the next one. Yes. So uh, any really final thoughts, Jay? Uh, You're going to have to get a little closer to the mic. Final thoughts. I think uh, kudos again to our good friends at SCCE. Uh, Adam Turtletob and the crew always do a great job. Um, you know, I, I think if there was one other theme that we got to hear from the regulators is the regulators um, are, I think, are very sympathetic to the industry. They, um, if they aren't actually doing it, I think they see the benefit for something like the general um, program what's what's it called that we just the the test program the evaluation no no the um, pilot program pilot program and I think they see the benefits of trying to adapt that to their individual um, relationships that they all realize that companies are busy they're concerned about safety they're concerned about fulfilling their regulatory obligations so if there's a way to do it better, to do it quicker, and to do it more efficient, and, um, you know, one of the regulators who was speaking was saying that they asked him to travel to go visit with, you know, some people who were part of an investigation, and he felt that, yes, it was worth his while to travel and go have six interviews because that would make the things, uh, the investigation uh, and the remediation go quicker. So I think less people are standing on ceremony and they're looking to try to understand that there is so much regulation out there and there's so much that people are doing and the government does not want to hold you up. The government wants to help you out and move you through the line. So I think that's a real interesting point to keep in mind as we go through the coming year and we start looking at people who are calling to deregulate. Deregulation, just because it's deregulation, does not necessarily mean it's good. And if we lose things about safety and about ethics and compliance, then I don't think we win by just deregulating. Yeah, that's a great point. Let me maybe take it in a different direction. What I see is uh, the regulators, and in the anti-corruption world, that means the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission really working more with companies. I recognize that the Department of Justice are criminal prosecutors and they have to criminally prosecute when appropriate. But a large part of the initiatives with the pilot program, with this evaluation and where they may take the pilot program going forward, is that if companies will uh, self-disclose, they will investigate, they will remediate, and when appropriate, uh, disgorge profits, 
the government will reward that conduct with a uh, down to a hundred percent discount of your fine or a full declination, but certainly a discount of where it could have been. So that regulatory uh, interaction that the re uh, prosecutors from the Department of Justice and the uh, lawyers from the Securities and Exchange Commission have with the industry, I think, really drives forward the uh, the greater goal of having more compliance going forward. So this has been uh, the Washington, D.C. edition. So, Jay, uh, I look forward to our next live recording. Perhaps we can have Jim back. Jim, thanks uh, for joining us, dropping in, as they say. Would love to, uh, to be with you again. All right. So, as I always like to say, thank you so much for joining us to look at the week in FCPA that was. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week in FCPA, the Washington edition. I have two requests for you. The first is if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rank us, excuse me, rate us. It would help our rankings. Second, if you have any questions, please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, signing off for this week in FCPA from Washington, D.C. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.